right, welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Heather Mason, who is the founder of the Minded Institute, a leading yoga therapy training organization known for its focus on mental health and empowering yoga and health professionals to integrate yoga therapy into healthcare. So Heather, thank you. And I want to start by asking you, why do you do the work that you do? There's so many different angles I can answer that question from. But generally, the perspective that I take is that I had my own mental health issues. I'm very public about that. I don't know how young they started, but young enough that I can't remember. And almost everybody around me was medicated for mental health issues. That's not uncommon in New York. And there's no judgment coming from me around it. But I did not want it to be my path. And so after graduating from university, I decided to actually go and practice intensive yoga and mindfulness meditation for three years. And that gives rise to transformation. And I considered becoming a Buddhist nun, but because I didn't, instead I wanted to take this to other people. And you need, you know, even though we talk about yoga being accessible and there are movements to bring yoga to underserved communities, it is more of the purview of people who are affluent. And my feeling is that through its integration into healthcare systems, especially like in the UK where I live, where we have socialized medicine, that's really going to reach the largest number of people so that they have the opportunity to experience something like I did. You remember why you made that original decision to go study yoga, meditation? Like what compelled you to do that? Well, that's quite a story. Um, I'll try and give you the bullet points because that could be a half an hour. But first of all, I had always been interested in Eastern philosophies. And if you ask me why I couldn't answer, there was nobody who introduced me to it. I did not come from a world where that was offered or interesting to the people around me. Um, in 2000, sorry, wrong time frame. In 1996, I went to Costa Rica and I had been prescribed a medication that was used at that time for malaria. It's not any, it's really not prescribed anymore because it is known to have really negative psychological effects, including psychosis. And it led me to have a reperception of reality. I did not become psychotic, but I became paranoid and had these incredible insights, which I did not enjoy, like that the nature of reality was not substantial. Um, but when you have it on a medication unplanned, don't even know the medication's the cause, and you think you've gone insane, it's really frightening. I came back to Manhattan. Sorry, I was the, sent nature, the nature of reality was not substantial. What do you mean by that? I mean that I understood that there were just sort of these components making up reality constructs. You know, my one of my undergraduate degrees was in philosophy. So I was already sensing into these ideas that what we perceive to be real is based upon the presentation of our mind and a reflection of it, as opposed to 
inherent truth. And that's a nice concept when you read about it in a book. It's very different when you, in an embodied way, without any training, actually realize that the reality you take to be true and real is just a reflection of your mind. And you do not know where the substantial solid reality is or if it exists at all. So that was really terrifying. You know, I think it would be akin to somebody that probably had a bad um, psychedelic trip, but I hadn't signed up for that. I was just taking the doctor's medication. Mm. And um, so I went to see a psychiatrist in Manhattan because I actually thought maybe I was schizophrenic. Again, I hadn't linked the medication to this experience. And he actually said to me, you know, I know that you would like to be medicated for this. I know you think that you have psychosis, but you don't. And the insights that you're describing to me are extremely unique for a human being, especially a person your age to have. And I'd call it a special experience. What we need to do is manage your anxiety. And as was so common in those days, I will give you Xanax for a few days, but I will prescribe nothing else but therapy. I was furious. Um, but you know, he probably saved me. So fast forward, I used to come home from my university in New York most weekends to be with my family. And I was on a bus and this guy sat next to me and he said, I have just been to Guru Mai's ashram. And I had a sense that I would need to give somebody tickets to go. So I bought extra ones. And we started talking. He said, I have a very strong feeling you need to visit her. So the next time I left university or college, right, for Americans, um, for the weekend, I went there. I had never been to an ashram before. And there were about 30 people introduced to this big ashram to stay there and all the rules. And I had this sinking sensation that the person there was just talking to me. And I was like, Stop being insane. You know, this is only feeding that whole belief system that you're psychologically unwell. And when I, when everybody was led to another room, the woman stopped me and she said, I was only speaking to you. And again, I thought maybe I'm tripping or having some kind of like divergence from reality. She said, I've decided to give you a private audience with Guru Mai. I didn't even know who she was. I would only learn the following day when like a thousand people came to prostate prostrate before her that she was somebody influential and I sat in front of her explained my experience and she just said to me go to India and she gave me a mala bracelet and told me to practice so I studied abroad for a semester in India that's where I learned yoga and I had lived in this maybe totally misconceived reality that you go to a guru, they take this peacock feather and they make you feel better. And what I realized in going to India was two things. One, nobody was going to help me to become mentally well, except for myself. They might guide me. And two, that mental wellness was all about perception. Because I remember being in Varanasi in 1996, and seeing the most impoverished people possible, smiling, and actually being jealous. Mm. And I thought that that's a real learning 
that I want to be those people whose house is made up of trash bin liners. And so after um, completing university, I went back to New York for a year and I was became more depressed. Um, actually, I transferred to the University of Hawaii and that was a very good experience for me. Studied Eastern philosophy, but came back. And then I just took off back to Asia. And without even trying, everywhere I would go, people from Buddhist monasteries would draw me in to come and practice with them. And I did my first 10-day retreat, and I understood unequivocally that this was the path for me. I had no questions because everything I was learning already aligned with my viewpoint and reality. And here was a pathway to manage. So it's kind of a long story, but hmm. that is the real story. What I hear you saying a little bit is that you had a realization that, mm, I think as you put it, you know, no one was going to save you except for yourself. This kind of taking responsibility, mm, which I think is so powerful, right? And also very difficult if we grew up in a world of uh, not taking responsibility of, you know, it's it's up to someone else, you know, or I am a product of my environment. Do you remember that initial transition towards like, wow, like if this is going to happen for me, it's not going to be because of anyone else. It's because it's going to be because of me. I think my transition was slightly different than that, Avi, although, yes, this was an important realization. I was living under the notion that I could reconstruct myself in an image where I would be happy. And that was based on understanding how to say the right things, modeling being calm like people around me when I wasn't, wearing the right clothes, doing all the right things. So I still felt that it belonged, that it was within my power and that I wasn't outsourcing that. But I really didn't understand that it was about cultivating my mind rather than a bunch of external constructs, ideas, you know, who I should be as a human being to be good enough and worthy that would therefore make me feel happy. And that it was all about my mental development and that that required actual work in a way that I, my society did not provide any advice around. Did you know what that work was going to be immediately? Or was that a path of discovering what that work looked like? I think that as soon as I went to my first Buddhist monastery, I understood. As soon as the first monk in Korea told me to just sit, and that's another long story, and I sat and watched my breath, I understood. I understood that the mind could go away into a thousand different thoughts and that there was this faculty that could direct the mind back to other things, that attentional control was possible and that bearing one's own pain was possible, not in a sort of like um, martyr way, but as not running away from it. And becoming interested in one's experience could be more beneficial than constantly trying to alter it. Hmm. So that really happened to me quite early on in my journey. Sensing into it was the mind that I had to grapple with. Hmm. Becoming interested in the experience, almost like a curiosity. 
Yeah. Like rather than I don't want to be this person, I don't want to feel this way. What is the nature of this feeling? What does it feel like to be me? Um, you know, and when we come to yoga, cause that, that was more in like the Buddhist context, like what does it feel like to be in this posture? What makes me want to escape warrior two after being there for three minutes, which is not really different than what makes me want to escape something other that I'm experiencing that has a visceral component associated with it. Hmm. Hmm. Do you think that, you know, some of the, the suffering or maybe a great deal of the suffering has to do with maybe like taking ourselves too seriously, getting really caught in this identity of hmm, who I am and do I like who I am do I want to be someone else? All of that. Absolutely. You know, but I think that a lot of people, when we talk about taking oneself too seriously, they just mean we should be more jovial and lighthearted. But I think the way you've described it is really important, which is to understand that, you know, it, and it does come back to both yogic and Buddhist views, which is essentially that like, there is either no self, depending upon which tradition you're talking about, where there is this luminous self and everything we just layer upon it, trying to be something, create something. And once we start sort of peeling back that layer, those layers, which is an act of letting go, it's work. We realize it's just like this. I don't have to be something else than what I am. And anyway, I can't. <laughs> it's like what Oscar Wilde said. Do you remember that quote? Um, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Mm. Yeah. I like that. I like to say, um, I can't not be myself, so I might as well be myself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think for me, it was, it was like realizing the pattern was so powerful that I was just doing it. Like I was just judging myself again and again. Are you good enough? Are you not good enough? You know, external rewards. If someone else, you know, gives you a compliment or someone is criticizing me and just going back and forth, back and forth. And I saw, wow, this can, this can go on forever. <laughs> I, I've got to play a different game. <laughs> is there a different game to play? Because this is just exhausting me, you know? I think probably everybody listening knows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to ask, you know, you shared in your journey, like kind of this pivotal moment of mm, this person sitting next to you on the bus who opened this door by saying, you know, here's some tickets to, to go to this place that you never heard of. I'm always very interested in these moments of life that seem to be, you know, totally outside of, our control, anything we intended, you know, but have the most profound impacts on our life. What do you make of that? Well, I've had a lot, Avi, and a bunch before that. So what seemed could be the only thing that I made, could make of it, was that there was some kind of plan that I was being guided I continue to experience that, you know, we're talking about when I was 18 years old, I'm 47. 
and it hasn't stopped. So what I make of it is that in at least in my trajectory, because I don't like to claim that my reality is reflected in everybody else's experience, but in my reality, there is a definitive vision for what I should be doing. And when I align with that, people show up out of the woodwork and draw me into places. And when I do not, doors shut in my face and life becomes very stressful. So my spiritual path calls me actively and I sort of feel like I don't have a choice. But I know that's probably not a lot of people's experience. Can you say a little bit more about, you know, aligning with your vision and getting out of alignment? Like how, how do you fall out of alignment and how do you recognize that you're out of alignment and take yourself back? Okay. So let's fast forward to now, right? So I'm a spiritual person, but I'm a business owner. I own the largest yoga therapy school in Europe and business causes stress and you get wrapped up in, you know, making sure that ends meet in how the program is going to look in the frustration around students doing certain things, your staff, et cetera. And it starts to move through your mind. You ruminate, even though you have all of that past experience, you're wondering how to make things better over and over again and doing all these things to fix it, which I do do. And then I go on retreat, which I do quite often. And I bring my mind back to center and I come back and those things sort of shift. So bringing myself out of alignment is allowing those things to pull on me and to me, me to get caught in the external reality and fixing it. And then the external reality tends to get more and more complicated. Lots of things start to kind of fall apart. And then when I go back and my mind is at ease, it's like, as I'm back in alignment, the external world also aligns itself. Now, from a psychological perspective, somebody would just say to me, well, that's just because you're perceiving your reality differently. But that is not my experience. It's actually that my internal world is a reflection of my external. And so if I fall out of alignment with being aware of my mind and body, and the cultivation of my mind as being my primary life focus, then life gets difficult for me over and over again. I should have learned that lesson. <laughs> but it, it seems that maybe something is, keeps pulling you back to, I don't even, I mean, maybe you're calling it out of alignment, but I'm not sure if it is, but to this other, this other area of focus maybe around business and stressors and logistics and, and these things. So something inside of you must still be saying that this is important too, right? Something about the, this is important. The business aspect or the other one? Yeah, I guess the business aspect or when you're talking about, you know, kind of just the daily, the daily th practices that you're doing, the areas of focus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is important. Um, I didn't know that what I grew would become as big as it is. And so there is a Do you think it, the fact that it's big, does that change things for you? Yeah. The How level so? of responsibility is quite significant, which reduces the amount of time that I can spend 
engaging in the spiritual practices that I hold so dear. Mm. You know, I have a pretty big staff, hundreds of students in any given time frame, and there are the realities of how much time exists in a given day. And you I'm say more so about great. this, about the, like the responsibility, like the fact that it, it gets larger and there's more people involved. And so how does this change things? Yeah. How does it change things? So, you know, the first year that I ran, ran the training in 2009 and I was the only lecturer and I created the manual and I did the lectures and I was in touch with the, all of the students and I had my private yoga therapy clients. It was like, okay, those are the things that I do. But now every day I have to talk to operations and they need me to do these tasks and I need to give them tasks, which they send back to me. Every day I need to talk to marketing. They give me things to review and I have to send it back. Every day I have to talk to policy. Every day I have student queries. Every day I have meetings of people that want me to engage in actions to bring yoga into healthcare. And one could say that in all of that, your mind could remain completely focused and balanced. But I think there has to be also an honesty here, which is what you feed is going to be what's present. And if you're always having to move very, very quickly amongst these things, it is difficult to bring yourself to center. It is, it's much harder. Um, so it amps up the practice. It increases the capacity for intentional control, but there is a tension there. Hmm. And I, you know, there are probably a lot of people on here, I imagine, that might say something different, like, I'm Zen all the time, and but I want to be real. Mm. <laughs> and it's not like that. Maybe also I my spiritual practice grew up in monasteries where I was meditating 16 hours a day. So maybe it's slightly that I had that polarized experience, like such heightened self-awareness and concentration. And when you juxtapose that to being in the regular world, it has to be different. You're talking, you know, you're moving around. You have so much sensory input comparatively. I really appreciate your emphasis on honesty because I think it's, it's essential for making any kind of progress. If there there's progress to be made, we have to be honest, you know? Um, and you know, I think, I think you're totally right. Right. Like being in a monastery, meditating for 17 hours a day and engaging in, you know, the business world, you know, those are completely different things, you know, and, and it has these challenges that don't exist in more of a, you know, isolated environment, so to speak. Um, it's more challenging. It seems like it would be more challenging. However, at the same time, like there is only still this internal practice going on as far as I can tell. So it's, it's a different area of the game, but the game is still being played, right? I'm wondering if it, even within yourself there, you notice maybe a story or tendencies of, of, of the mind to move between, mm, I have to do this, this needs to be done. And also maybe reframing it in a different way of like, I get to do this. I'm wondering if that goes on with it within you. If you notice that shift 
throughout throughout the day. Like for me, for some of these things that I have to do, like I know that I can't survive anymore with just the, I have to do this. I need to do this. Like that kind of pressure on myself, like I'll eventually break. So I have to reframe it. Yeah. What's it like for you? Yeah. I think the cognitive reframing piece is really, really important, but we all have proclivities. And so, you know, if the have to is your proclivity, reframing it towards I get to is more of an uphill battle. It's, you know, more rigorous than if your proclivity were the opposite of, you know, you're always sitting there thinking, I get to do this. And I think that the get to do this piece in terms of proclivities is more likely to be uh, what one experiences when there are not as many things pulling on one's attention. I think that that naturally makes it harder. Um, and also this was, this is tangential to what you asked, but I, I think it's really important to note that living in silence and isolation is no picnic. It's not like because you're doing that, that life is easy. It, you go into the depths of the nature of how the mind plays games with itself and you have no distractions in order to pull you out. So you're in the absolute throes of your mental constructs, habits, and fears. It's just that you don't also have to go do the laundry. My wash machine is making a little song right now, you know, so that you can put all your attention towards that, but it is by no means an out or an easier path. It's really tough. I'm glad you you emphasize that because I think it's so complicated, <laughs> right? Like trying to analyze these different ways, right? Like to say one is easier, one is hard. Like they're so different, right? To even yeah. to even compare them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Okay, so I I wanted um, mm -hmm. to just ask about your your mission and, gosh, I mean, it, it feels like it's such important work to me. I mean, so many so many teachers feel this way right? Experience the power of yoga, experience the transformation that happens for students and this mission to bring it yoga into healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. I imagine that your finger is somewhat on the pulse <laughs> of the healthcare world. And I'm just curious, um, you know, what could you say about that? Where, where do you think we're at? Um, where do you think we're at in terms of healthcare embracing yoga uh, as something that is extremely powerful? Yeah. Well, I think in the U.S. and the Veterans Association, I think we're really far because there are eight complementary practices available to veterans, and yoga is one of them. You know, you have the whole healthcare system of the rest of the United States, and then the VA. And the VA is one of probably the most forward-thinking integrative health system in the entire world. So, you know, you have these pockets. In Sweden, Joran Boll was able to take his Medi-Yoga program throughout the nation. I don't know what the stats are, but it's something between like a quarter to 30% of all the healthcare units in the country have his Medi-Yoga program. And he managed to do that by training health professionals in a model 
rather than taking health yoga professionals and trying to get them to knock on the doors because that is a more difficult route. Uh, so lots of countries have different things. In the UK where I live, it's very interesting. You know, we have something called social prescribing, which has been exported to other countries. Probably though most of the people listening will not know what it is. Social prescribing is the recognition that socialization or the lack thereof has a significant impact on one's health and health behaviors. So by actually referring somebody into an activity group of something they like, you will meet like-minded people. That socialization has actual physiological impacts that are measurable, and you're more likely to take good care of yourself. So people can be referred into yoga programs as part of social prescribing. And my other organization that I founded, the Yoga and Healthcare Alliance, was commissioned to create a yoga social prescribing program. It's 10 weeks long. And following evaluation a number of years ago, we've trained hundreds of teachers to teach it. So that's part of it. And actually, I'm about on this Saturday, I'm going to be lecturing at the Integrative student medical conference to talk about yoga in medical school. And that's really a big piece because that's where you change the paradigm. If you want to talk about yoga and healthcare, mm. yoga has to be embedded into the curriculum of the major healthcare professions. And I had to, it's interesting you asked this question, do a review between the, yes, the US and the UK of all of the different ways yoga is embedded into medical school education specifically, and primary institutions that are involved in doing so. So where are we at? We're probably 300% closer than we were 10 years ago, but we still have a mountain to climb. What do you see as the main obstacles? Funding. Funding is a huge obstacle. People talk about yoga being cost-effective, and it can be, especially from a prevention perspective and from a self-management perspective. But you still need to find the money, especially in a socialized system, that would otherwise go for like cancer patient acute care and provide yoga services when the budgets are so incredibly stressed and stretched. So I think that that's a big piece of it. I do not find that there are many health professionals these days who are disregarding the value of mind-body medicine and yoga fits in that camp. So I think funding, I think bureaucracy, and, and I know the yoga community does not like to hear this, but when you want something in a health system, you generally need to protocolize it. Or like the field of psychotherapy and psychology, you need to have a large time frame over which you demonstrate the efficacy of a generalized field that provides treatment in an individualized way. But really for yoga at this point, we would need protocols and those exist. But a lot of the yoga community feels that that detracts from the beauty of yoga that it's appropriation. You know, I deal with these kinds of issues and conflicts and discussions as part of my work. 
So those are the things that I feel are obstacles, but there are a lot of things also that are in our favor. A lot. I'm wondering, like, there are so many studies that have already been done. I've heard you speak about, you know, like, just like the main proven uh, evidence based to improve mood and reduce stress, like across across all these studies, right? I'm wondering as studies continue to to be done, and it seems even more more and more clear that these are the results, these are the effects, this is evidence based. How does that information then get to a doctor? Like, how does it present itself before a doctor and have a doctor say, oh, okay, like I'm going to change the way that I practice or the I'm going to offer this to my patient. Like, how does that happen? It's like, it seems that maybe sometimes the focus ends at like the study. Okay. If the studies are done over this long a period of time, then things are going to change. But practically speaking, you know, how is just your average medical doctor going to take that information and implement it? Okay. So I can only answer this question in a very tangible way from the UK perspective, because I'm on, I'm on the pulse of that. I mean, I can give you theories for other countries, but I can answer that very directly in this country. So you either need it in medical school, or if you have um, a doctor out there already, and you want them to understand the value. You usually will need to go through, because the UK has royal colleges for the different kinds of medicine, like the Royal College of Cardiology, the Royal College of Psychiatry, for example, but most importantly, the Royal College of General Practitioners. That's the largest of the royal colleges. And actually, the Yogan Healthcare Alliance, because this is something that we have been thinking of and working towards for a long time. What we did was we created a six-week course off the back of that social prescribing course, specifically for NHS staff, but with a focus on doctors, where they could take this course for themselves. It's six weeks over Zoom, one hour a week, and they could experience the benefits for themselves while little studies and the physiological mechanisms are gently peppered throughout the teaching in a non-heavily like academic way. And because this course is accredited by the Royal College of GPs, it's sent out so all GPs in the country can know that it happens. And in this country, we have like NHS trusts. These are like areas. And the trusts will also send out all the healthcare staff that these kinds of courses exist if they're for free. So if the government is willing to fund them or funding comes from a private donor. And so they are all super, super stressed. They're looking for something to do. And so this has been probably our most effective pathway. The other is to get any of the Royal Colleges to publish in their newsletters to their um, practitioners the value rather than going to individualized practices and to get things like the General Medical Council in the UK to actually say, we um, 
believe that there is a credible evidence base for yoga's efficacy. And then the challenge, of course, for the doctors is that yoga is so diverse, which is why I come back to the protocolized mm. piece. So how do I refer? Because a referral pathway then has to exist, and that's difficult. But you didn't ask that question. You just asked how you get to the doctors. The next piece is how do you refer and who pays? Mm. And we're working on that too, by the way. Do you see a future where maybe the doctors themselves can uh, lead some of these practices, be trained in, instead in, of referring outward? Yeah. In fact, if they do the six-week course, they get a certificate that says they're breath ambassadors, doctors and other NHS staffs. So they don't just have to be doctors. And they're allowed to teach two things. One is just slow breathing and one is ujjayi. But for ecumenical reasons, on request of the NHS, we're asked to call it ocean breath. And then they have a level two. And if they do the level two, we teach them other pranayama practices and gentle movement, all of which can easily be integrated into and an appointment in the UK, unless you ask for a double one with your general practitioner is 10 minutes, which they can teach within a three minute period. Now, so far, I believe we've had 600 NHS staff go through the program over the course of just the year. And so, and then they share it with others and share it with others and share it with others. So yes, definitely. Now, what Joran Bull did was amazing, you know, where he created this whole protocol that they can train in. Then you have to have person in the practice that teaches the whole protocol, Whereas if you teach doctors to offer something in three minute little stints, it really trickles down. It's so interesting, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing like yoga is so special in in a way because it's, and also this makes it challenging because it's the intersection of uh, healthcare and uh, religion or spirituality, right? And because of that, it, these tools, these practices, you know, get muddled in different impressions. Or I think that's the biggest challenge of also implementing them in schools, right? Because people are worried that there's a religious component to it. And yeah, yeah you know, religions kind of have monopolized spirituality. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's why I love yoga because it's honest in the way of, of like, there's so much overlap. You know, these things are not isolated. Like we, we try to put things in, in a box, like, okay, I am this way when I'm at work, I am this way when I am go to church, what, whatever it is, but that's not the reality of, of how it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very complex. Yeah. yeah. All of these things that you're talking about, do you think hopefully the result of them could be that once it becomes clear or more and more clear that there's great power and effect in these practices that eventually it becomes implemented into the actual curriculum in medical schools? Yeah. I mean, that's what happens here with social prescribing, you know, and to come back because I've, I've been researching that this morning. So it very much feels like a question that is at the tip of my tongue. So social prescribing was an idea. The medical community itself wanted to spread it, but there were limitations because, again, you need a paradigm shift. So 
student champions got together, the most notable one being Dr. Bogdan, who now lectures at, um, I think, the Harvard, um, what is the Kennedy School of Public Health, and also here at Imperial University, which is very reputable. Um, but when he was a student, he championed with other students the idea of social prescribing. It already existed, just like yoga already exists. And they got champions for every medical school in the country. And those champions started speaking to other people and other people, the other medical students got interested. And then they had these little like discussion groups around it. And then they, they decided that it would be useful to create something called like, there's something here that's called student selective components. The equivalent would be a medical school elective. So you need to create that. And that has to be standardized but it's not yet part of the curriculum, but everybody has the opportunity to do it. And then you start showing the uh, directors of different departments its value and the evidence base is also there. And then it becomes part of the curriculum. And that is actually what happened. So what I'm gonna be talking about on Saturday is how the same can be done for yoga. I think one of the challenges though that yoga faces as social prescribing does not, is it's a particular modality, whereas social prescribing is a recognition of the social aspect of healthcare. But there is evidence, there was just a, a study that was published by the National Institutes of Health. Um, they publish one every few years about what's going on in complementary medicine in the United States. And it's 100% clear that the most popular complementary practice in terms of growth from 2002 to now has been yoga. So if the public's taking it up, then it needs to be something that also the doctors are looking at, you know? But yeah, I, I do think it's very possible to get it into the curriculum. You just need to know the inroads. In this country, which you don't have in the U.S., Maybe you do, but I don't think in the same way. It has something called the College of Medicine. And it's sort of like a hub for all of the most influential integrative medicine practitioners, physicians primarily, to get together to talk about how to influence policy in this country. And they work with students to help empower them for curriculum change while also working on the top down. The social prescribing is fascinating. I'm glad that you mm. you brought this up, and I'm wondering also the correlation between you know the awareness of uh, mental health that seems to have really exploded in the last few years with this. So it's like acknowledgement that there's a problem. That's that's the first thing, and then possible solutions. And one of yes. them is you know this need that humans have to feel connection, you know? And people hear about that as a solution. And I think most of us go, no, yes. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've seen the um, documentary that Netflix put out about the blue zones. You've heard about the, the blue zones, kind of the places, the study done, you know, around places in the world where people are living the longest, yeah. you know, and that's an element of all of these places, even though the blue zones are in, you know, across all the continents, essentially. Uh, that a strong feeling of connection socially is essential to longevity. 
in in life. So I'm wondering, like, what's your sense of 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 how necessary it is to actually have the science behind that? Like, was was there greater science in regard to this social prescribing than there is for yoga, or is something about this solution just uh, stronger or resonates more profoundly inside an individual when they hear about it, which makes them say, yes, let's start doing this. That's a great question. And the truth is, I don't know the answer, but I think the corpus of literature out there that highlights the social determinants of health is pretty robust and more likely to be robust than the evidence for yoga. And the thing is, that social connection has so many different possibilities. It just means help people engage in community where you have a specificity with yoga, which makes it more complicated to just say, well, this makes sense, right? And social prescribing is an actual referral system into a group activity. So you are talking about um, that consideration But once you say, I'm referring you into yoga, it's again, what kind of yoga? How is it going to help you in specific ways? Um, And across the board, I can't say as a yoga therapist, and I'm sure not as a doctor, if your issue is cardiovascular disease, you're going to benefit from exactly the same practice as somebody with osteoporosis. And so the specificity also makes it harder. I knew you didn't, you know, I'm, I'm elaborating on things you didn't ask, but I do think you're talking about a much broader conversation when you talk about the value of socialization versus the specific value of yoga with all of these different components and how they're mixed up together with, within different lineages. It seems to me that this is maybe the most powerful motivator of human action. I'm curious if you feel feel the same way. It's like the even if we look at gender, you know, men and women and their relationship with yoga, you know, for such a long time, I think it's at least in the US, you know, much more socially acceptable for uh, a woman to have a yoga practice, right? Yes. And therefore they do because that's I'm still included in my social group. This is an aspect of my identity that there's no problem with going going to yoga. But for men, it's been much slower because your average peer group, you know, guys, oh, you know, whatever label they want to give to yoga um, causes people to uh, reject it, you know? Yeah. And that is a problem. And, you know, that's about the entire piece around accessibility, highlighting to the public at large that a yogi doesn't look like this, whether you're talking male, female, or all, you know, the ways that people identify in between size, age, race, religion, you know, that there isn't a yogi. But unfortunately, the media over the last few decades has definitely identified the yogi. (laughs) And so that has a very popular resonance within culture. 
I often ask men, how do we get more men, you know, or any kind of group of people where I don't see them uh, highly present in yoga classes or in trainings. How do we get more of people like you? Yeah. I I think it, it always takes courage to be one of the first. You know, one of the more powerful conversations I had was this guy, uh, John Ferguson, who's, uh, you know, ex-Marine veteran, and Mm -hmm. this is the work that he does, you know, and listening to him speak, it's like, I don't even think it's possible for anyone else to do what he's doing because he is from that peer group of veterans. So they'll open up and listen to him because he can say, I've been where you are and now I'm doing these practices and they've changed my life. Like, give it a try, you know? Yeah. Um, slightly differently, but I can relate to that. You know, my area of specialism within yoga therapy is trauma, PTSD. I have had complex PTSD. And so I was able to connect with the head of PTSD UK and really highlight the value of yoga. And so we have a collaboration together. And that is because I can also say, I know what it's like. I know it works. And not just because of the clinical trials. I know what it feels like to be afraid. I know what it's like in this situation versus that situation and why also somebody might reject doing it. But when I say that, I just want to shout out to Rachel Bilski, who also made that possible in case she's listening, because she really made that collaboration possible. And she works with them now. I always give credit where credit is due. <laughs> <laughs> Try to, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of my actually one of my favorite things about the yoga community when I first entered it was um, at least the one that I was in, it was very free and open in terms of you like something that you're experiencing through my facilitation as a teacher, go ahead, take it. Like you you like the language that I use, like go ahead, take it, use it. Like it's it's yours. It's kind of this mm, free, open um, sourcing of, of information, which was so nice to me. It was almost like an acknowledgement that <laughs> in a way, nothing is original, right? Because where did it come from before? Um, ah, I, that was just such a breath, a breath of fresh air for me. Yeah. I agree with that. And also in the lineage that I came up from in Buddhism, we were always taught to acknowledge our teachers and to pay homage to those who came before us that empowered us with the knowledge that we pass on. And it's a sort of honoring. It's not about copyright or anything, but it's it's maybe a humility. Hmm. Like the idea that nothing is new, but you can keep going back and back and back and back. Yeah. 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 What's the role of humility for you in your practice? Is that important? Yeah, it is. It is. And it's it's an interesting one, you know, leading this organization, working with parliament and all of that other stuff. And um, not feeling like, you know, because of what I've done, that I'm particularly special. Interestingly, I definitely don't feel like I am. <laughs> you know, I'm just me with the same demons that a lot of people have working on them. But because of what I do, I get a lot of emails and um, people, you know, kind of bestow many compliments upon me. And that's, that's interesting to actually just 
be grateful and express gratitude, but also just kind of let it flow and not take it to hand. You before mentioned, you know, you can really, really judge yourself or really, really beef yourself up. So just constantly trying, I think more than humility to remain neutral and remember that, you know, we're all just who we are and not trying to become something great, but it's useful to do something great. What did Martin Luther King say? If you can't do something great, do small things in great ways. Mm. Maybe I'm paraphrasing. I always really like that. I like what you said that it's it's useful to do something great. What what does that mean? Can you say more about that? You know, look at what you think in your world you can improve that you have the power to do and take that on with passion. You know? So rather than trying to be great, actively try through your actions to bring greatness to the world. And greatness can be in tiny pockets, right? Diamonds are very, very small in comparison to other things, but we place high value on them. And so can be acts that we're passionate about that may not ricochet in huge ways and ripple in huge ways, but still have impact. Ah, Heather, thank you so much. And <laughs> I know uh, maybe you don't want to take credit and it's not necessary, but I, I feel grateful for the work that you and so many others are doing in this field. I, I can just feel how important it is. Um, so I hope that you continue and that it continues to serve you um, and that you get as much as you're giving back out of it. And I, I sense that, that you are because it is so meaningful. Um, if people are interested in learning more about your work, more about your program, what's the best way for them to find out more information? So if they're interested in the stuff that the yoga therapy school does, and also, and we didn't get into that, there are also avenues through which we're bringing yoga therapy to healthcare, but that is different because it's more bespoke. So they can go to themindedinstitute.com. And if they want to know about the large movements in the UK to bring yoga into healthcare, both from a patient and healthcare perspective, they can go to uh, the yoga and healthcare alliance.com and read some of the information, but also get in touch. So those are the primary ways that I think people could reach out. I have a YouTube channel. I was doing a lot of free videos during the pandemic. I haven't had time recently. So if anybody's interested in just listening to me speak or learning some of the practices, they're available. Um, and, oh, there's a conference taking place. Jonathan Rosenthal put it together, which is free, I think. Um from the 15th to the 17th of March at this event. So it's the Neuro Yoga NYC conference, I think. And it's Jonathan Rosenthal, and he's a doctor. And that, yeah, you can look up that conference online and find out a lot of information, not specifically about me, but just about this in general. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast, Heather. Thank you so much, Avi. Um, I wish everybody well. Take good care of yourselves and um, be gentle with yourself. Life is hard. Thanks for listening. 
you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.